Classical music is vibrant, alive, and ever-changing. It's then and it's now. It's filled with the creativity and spirit of artists from all backgrounds and experiences. And it's as much in Carol Okoye Uba's dance as it is Beethoven's Fifth. Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future, and they're hosted by me, Loki Karuna. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artists and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. A pleasure to have you here with me as usual, and great to meet those of you who are here for the first time. Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize classical music, both conceptually and programmatically. If you'd like more information on the Triloquy podcast, you can check out past opuses, you can learn about some of the people who've made this show possible, and you can contribute to the cause at triloquy.org. Always appreciate your support. I have a great interview to showcase this week featuring Carla Donahue Perez from the Catalyst Quartet. And I'm going to sandwich that conversation between a couple of things that have happened in uh, this government of ours since I last spoke with y'all. But I wanted to get started by announcing that uh, New York is on my mind and not just on my mind, but in my not so distant plans. After uh, several very long conversations with my partner, we've decided to move to the Big Apple. My travel schedule has been taking a toll on the both of us uh, separately and together. So we're excited to start the next chapter of our lives in a new place with new possibilities. Uh, as I'm recording this, we actually have an apartment picked out, but I'm not going to say what part of town or anything because I don't want to jinx anything. But it's an area that I'll be thrilled to uh, call home once everything is settled, and I can't wait uh, to be there. So appreciate your uh, support and patience with the <laughs> Triloquy podcast uh, over the course of that transition. But as I mentioned, uh, the United States is uh, <laughs> doing what it does, isn't it? Not only uh, did the Supreme Court say no to student loan forgiveness, they struck down affirmative action as well. Um, and as far as I understand, I don't think there's a path to bring uh, either of those back. I'll talk to y'all about student loans uh, after the interview. But uh, as for affirmative action, I saw lots of really interesting bits of discourse on the interwebs regarding this. And uh, it seemed to quickly boil down to Asian people versus black people in many of the think pieces and opinions that I saw. And I kind of wanted to uh, speak to that here briefly. So this conversation of the marginalization of black people by the hand of other American minority groups is tricky uh, because numbers say one thing and lived experiences say another thing. Before I go any further, I just want to make it clear that two things can be true at the same time. I, Loki Karuna, am rooting for everybody black. And I believe that historically marginalized communities must work together toward common goals if we're going to get somewhere in this world. So let me break down these two ideas just a little bit. Um, first and foremost, I believe that black people and specifically the American descendants of enslaved Africans are owed big 
by the United States. As I've talked about here before, the physical and financial infrastructures that make the United States a place that's desirable for immigrants and desirable for immigration, those things were built on the backs of unpaid laborers, unpaid to this day. When you add to that the lack of reparations or other systematized efforts to give people like me the leg up that generational wealth has afforded other people, we have an environment where the successes of a few folks, a few black people are positioned as the successes of all black people. For example, Paul Robeson talked about this uh, when the government said that he had nothing to complain about due to his global successes, having gone to Rutgers and that sort of thing. And we need more people to talk about that sort of thing today. Yes, Many black folks have done very well for themselves, especially in music and athletics, but black people are still owed. And affirmative action, in my opinion, was a tiny way that we were doing that as a country, at least until now. There are a number of studies that you can check out regarding affirmative action and who it serves and who it doesn't serve. Uh, but the clear through line uh, in any study that you look at is that white women benefited from affirmative action more than any other group. At the same time, about 70% of white women oppose affirmative action, according to polls. Um, that, that was a, a 2014 study by the Cooperative Congressional Election uh, Study. So what does that mean? It means that the idea of black people benefiting from something based on our history as black people is what's been at the center of this entire conversation, not rising all boats and all marginalized people, but this idea that affirmative action unfairly benefits black people when the numbers say something completely different. It's easy to diminish this to admissions uh, based on skin color. Uh, but what we're really talking about, again, are historical realities that maintain contemporary status quo and the way that that has been uh, positioned to uh, primarily benefit other groups while leaving black folks behind and ultimately striking down the whole thing to make sure that there's no way uh, for black folks to, to benefit in that way. So let's throw in the larger BIPOC community into this conversation. In many arenas, including orchestral music, Asians and Asian Americans are very well represented. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just what it is. Uh, this isn't because they're smarter or more talented than black folk. It's simply due to the fact that our histories are different and the result of those histories have different outcomes today. Something else that I wanted to share that I thought was pretty interesting that I found online, the Pew Research Center reports that 76% of all Asian adults say that race and ethnicity should not factor into college admissions, which is interesting to me considering how this compares to the numbers on white women who are both the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action and largely opposed to it uh, by the percentage. So just something to chew on there as you consider to develop your ideas uh, and opinions on this issue. I don't know how public it is yet, so I won't say too much, but behind the scenes, there's a group of uh, black composers, teachers, and musicians, some arts activists who are putting together a statement uh, and some actions uh, to really respond to this. Hopefully I'll be able to tell you more next week, but in the meantime, I just encourage you to do some research and to engage in this conversation with the people around you in an honest way and in a way that really points to some of the larger overarching issues that uh, this is connected to. Uh, consider not just skin color, but the histories attached 
to skin color and the contemporary realities that that has created. Consider the historical differences between historically marginalized communities and see if you can't understand or determine why indigenous and black people need programs like affirmative actions uh, more, more than others. Consider the degree to which these programs have further marginalized black and brown people and try to make that the baseline of your views on this issue rather than just saying uh, we're, we're basing admissions and those sorts of things just on skin color. When it comes to so-called classical music, I think it's vital to understand these realities uh, which are quite similar when you look at the trajectory of orchestras over the past 60 years or so. Gender diversity has made leaps and bounds, and Asians and Asian Americans are well represented within these organizations. So what are the real reasons why we still aren't seeing uh, the same things for Black folks, specifically in orchestral music, but also Black and Brown folks and other marginalized communities? Some that's important to think about. As we continue to unpack these things, I also think it's, it's vital to do so in a way that uh, creates more unity as opposed to division. This conversation has to be bold and brave, even uncomfortable at times. Uh, but what it can't be is a conversation of white women versus black people or Asians versus Afro-Americans. I honestly, in my heart, believe that the only way to the future is together. So let's do that in our own unique ways within our field. A few days ago, um, I posted on social media some of the results. I posted on social media uh, some of the results of my DEI work uh, with my work with the American Composers Orchestra. 90% of the emerging composers that I was able to platform this season self-identified as BIPOC. Um, and that doesn't mean that I was pushing someone else to the side or someone was unworthy because everyone works hard. Everyone is deserving. So this idea that seats or spots are being taken away from certain communities is in itself just a, a fallacy. If we all do the work that we can in our own individual ways where we are, we will see impact. That's my hope and that's my message on affirmative action, at least for uh, this week. Um, but enough preaching uh, for me for right now. I'm very thrilled to showcase my recent conversation with uh, Carla Donahue Perez, who's a founding member of the Catalyst Quartet. Uh, longtime listeners might remember that a couple seasons back, I had a chat with Abby Fayette, uh, who's the newest member, but uh, it's really great to get some insights on the group and uh, some of the recent uh, projects from one of the founding members. So I'm excited to share Showcase that, showcase that this week. Uh, among their most recent projects is an album called Uncovered Volume 3. It's the third in a series uh, that has the goal of recording all of the string quartets by historically black composers here in the United States. So Volume 3 includes music by William Grant Still, George Walker, and Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Uh, so Carla and I talk about this. We talk about the Catalyst Quartet in general and lots more. So I hope you enjoy this dialogue. Uh, to get us into the conversation, I wanted to share a recording from volume two of Uncovered by the Catalyst Quartet. This is the Catalyst Quartet's take on the Juba Dance movement from the String Quartet number two by Florence Price. Once again, music here to get us into my chat with Carla Donahue Perez. Hope you enjoy. started in 2010 
And uh, we were put together by the Sphinx organization. You know, they really wanted to like a lot like what they did for Harlem Quartet, help a young quartet get started and um, help specifically the alums of their um, competition. And as we all know, like you can't just put random four people together and expect it to to work. Um, And the first the the original members, um, Carlos and I and. Chris Jenkins and Brian Hernandez Luke, uh, our first year was, was, was wild and fun and wonderful. Um, but you know, both Chris and Brian had different, uh, life trajectories, things that they, they wanted to do that were a little bit different. And in quartet, you know, you have to, all four people want like the same goal. So, um, pretty quickly after that, we got, um, Paul Lariah and Jesse Montgomery. And that is where I think the Catalyst Quartet really started because the four of us had a very specific goal and idea of what we wanted to put forward, you know? And um, it's been, it's, it's been a wild ride because we've been fighting to be a certain way to be ourselves. And we finally got into this place where we, people are actually paying attention and we are seeing young groups start to do things sort of how we were doing them when we were starting when everybody else is like, that's weird. Um, (laughs) So that's like really strange and wild. Um, And obviously like, we're just a lot busier, you know, we used to have a couple of concerts a season and now we're so we're just like on another level of busy, which I'm so thankful for. You talk about, personal trajectories. I wonder if being a chamber musician was always what you had aspired toward. We're we're sort of taught to want to be in a big orchestra. At least that's my experience. Had you always hoped to make a living as a, as a quartet member? I did. I really always wanted to be in a string quartet. Um, when I, I grew up in Puerto Rico and, uh, when I was 12 years old, my family moved to California, specifically to the Bay area. And I met this incredible woman and went to this wonderful school that she started called the Crowden School. Her name's Ann Crowden. And that's where I fell in love with string quartets um, because the school had the curriculum was all centered around chamber music. Um, And so I've always wanted to be in a quartet, but I will tell you that there was a time when I thought it was never going to happen. So I tried and I tried and I tried and it didn't work out naturally. So then I started taking orchestra auditions. And I was at New World as a fellow and I was trying to, you know, just young mid twenties, like, where do I go? How do I go? How do I feed myself? And then Sphinx called and was like, Hey, would you like to be in a quartet? And I was like, yes, (laughs) auditions. Like I just, I, it was kind of a crazy risk to do that at that point because I was on another trajectory. Um, and it's the best risk I ever took. <laughs> and, and you talk about how you can't just plop four musicians down together and expect it to work. Um, obviously, it has worked over the years. The Catalyst Quartet has seen lots of success and there has continued to be personnel changes. I, I wonder um, how that has been engaged over the years. How do you select the right new member and how do you right. build and cultivate that rapport once they're selected? Right. Well, like I said, I think the the key is that the main four people like Jesse, Paul, Carlos and I kind of built, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a culture, uh, a way of being, uh, uh, you know, made the Catalyst Quartet and its mission 
for long enough that I think that once um, we needed people to step in, then it was clear what the Catalyst Quartet was and what that meant for somebody who was coming in. And so finding a like-minded person was an easy thing to do, right? Um, But that had to come from an established many years of this development of like, who are we and what are we doing and what are we about? So speaking of things that are established, we we definitely will talk about the Uncovered series here in a bit, but I'm curious about the differences or maybe not so differences between live performance, preparing recitals and tours versus preparing for a recording project. Oh, it's, oh wow, that's that's a that's a lot. There's so there're huge differences, you know. When you play on a concert stage, you're feeding off of the energy of the people out in the audience and and you're giving them energy and there's a sort of sense of like, you know, I can take a risk and it's not it's not permanent, mm. right? And when you're making a recording, um it's it, it. You try to recreate that feeling, but you can't help but think this is going to exist forever. And so I think there's a there's a sort of pressure that that we have, like something that we all put on ourselves, and maybe it's not a good thing, but that we have a certain expectation of what what we want to to go out there. And then also with the recording. Um, it's sort of like preparing for a marathon in a way, like you have to give yourself the right amount of time beforehand so that you can get through the long hours and your best is still, I mean, your, your worst playing when you're like at your most tired is still at a high enough place, if that makes sense. So a concert's only a few, it's only two hours maximum. A recording session, we could be there for like eight hours during the day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, hopefully not. That's really hard, but you never know. So how does this idea of things existing forever in the recording booth versus not necessarily so on the stage impact programming? It does does that have is that an ingredient in how, what you select uh, to offer to audiences versus put on CDs and and digital recording things? That's a great that's a that's a really great question and something we've thought about a lot. I mean, Catalyst Quartet is really concerned with making sure that our programming has meaning, that it has like a, it's telling a story. Traditionally, our uh programming is doesn't really have like a specific genre. Like we're not trying to just do new music or trying to just do the standard works or whatever. We're trying to to tell uh, to have an, a human experience, right? And so that's where we usually come from a place of an idea first, and then the repertoire is informed by the idea, right? And so in our albums and things that we've chosen to put out there, like our first, it, it, it's a our first album actually came from from an inspiration of, of hearing Glenn Gould's quartet and thinking, why don't people play that? Mm-hmm. And then saying, you then from there and his in being inspired by him and his person and his life. And then from there, we went to arranging the Bach Golden creations. You see, so it, the idea came that way. Now the uncovered project is a little bit different because that came from a place of, of us always fighting for certain things and feeling like the only way that we could get it out there and for people to notice is to put these recordings out there in this way. And so, you know, it's, it's a big combo of things. Cause I think the recording aspect of things, it's, it's a different, 
there's a different thought process than when we're thinking about our programming as a quartet. And I will say that, and we'll probably touch touch on this. Um, in the last few years, we've had to kind of sideline a bit of our normal programming to completely focus almost entirely on Uncovered because it has been kind of demanded of us. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Say, say more to that demanded <clears throat> of you by whom or, or by what? By everybody. You know, due to the social unrest in our country and everything and people finally kind of like feeling like they needed to program a certain way, they suddenly look to us like, oh, you know about this. You've been doing this. So why don't you just play that repertoire all the time? And so it's been a weird ride because now we're in a place of like, wait a minute, we need to incorporate this the way that we do. Right. Which is in a much more inclusive and holistic kind of way. Right. Um, and so it's these last few years with the pandemic and all, all of that, it's been really interesting. <clears throat> you, you really have me thinking about a lot right now, because again, when I think about the aspiration of being a chamber musician versus an orchestral musician, a part of that is the freedom, freedom of programming, freedom of approach and all of those things. I wonder how generally you think about or Catalyst Quartet thinks about balancing, really taking on that freedom and, and leveraging that autonomy versus, you know, engaging what audiences and what other institutions want to hear. I mean, it, it seems like it's a both and sort of thing. Yeah, it's something you have to constantly be balancing because um, you have to fulfill both sides. You know, you have to push your audiences. You have to push presenters and be like, trust us. Mm. Right. But then at the same time, you also have to trust what people are asking for. Right? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Was it as simple when it comes to the repertoire that's been featured on um, Uncovered so far, all, all three volumes, was it as simple as the music just sitting on a shelf and not being played? Or were there steps of uncovering, <laughs> you know, <laughs> discovering scores or, or doing research to find the parts? I wonder if you can speak to that. It's a bit of both. Honestly. Mm. So it's an interesting thing because we've been surrounded by this music for a long time for a number of reasons, because of the way that we program, because of the people that we interact with, because of Sphinx, all of these different reasons that we've heard these pieces and we've played some of them and whatnot. And um, we kept coming back to the why. Why isn't this performed more? Why isn't this programmed? Why are there no recordings of this piece why are there only why is there only one recording of that piece and why are there really bad recordings of that piece and you know and just kind of like it got to a place of like well if something's going to change the only way it can change is if this is given the respect it deserves mm -hmm. which is to be recorded and played in at the highest level possible and so that's kind of what we set out to do and so finding a lot of these pieces was crazy, actually. Huh. Um, we had to reach out to friends. We had to, um, the, for example, with this volume, the Walker exists actually in two versions. There's like the one that's published. And then there's the one that the people who um, recorded it have like different notes and rhythms that hmm. he <laughs> that he put in and so we actually were able to thankfully i'm friends with one of the 
um, violinists and she sent me their parts with the edit. So we were able to get that, but had we not, do you know what I mean? Like that, that's yeah. crazy. And that those corrections don't exist anywhere for whatever reason, but clearly they're what he wanted because he had them, he was with them during that recording, that first recording. So that's crazy. And then with Florence Price, that's a whole bag of things that we could uncut. We could be talking about for a long time because the, the way that it has been published has been atrociously bad mm. with tons of mistakes and the company is unwilling to fix those mistakes or give it some kind of scholarly edition. Um, so we had to go through the library and get the manuscripts and do a lot of research and a lot of like slow work that, that was kind of, kind of nuts. <laughs> um, and if we could come out with our own edition, we would love to do that, but that's like a whole nother thing. Cause then there's fundraising and right. figuring that out and the rights to the parts. And so every volume has, we've encountered something like this. I think the Florence price volume was the most difficult because, because of the note issues and so much of the scores also like if you look at her um, at her scores, you can tell she had a copyist, and there are a lot of human errors mm. that are easy easily fixed. Like if you were to just play it on a piano, or you know, just say, "Oh, you know, that's that's actually a G natural, not a G sharp," or et cetera, and so on. So that's been really challenging, and it's another part of the of the issue of like how are these pieces going to get performed if good parts aren't out there and scored. Is, is there a specific sort of relationship or dynamic between publishers and the finished product? How, who, you know, because I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who will look at a part and then hear your recording and wonder, well, who's right here or, or what, what should yeah. I trust? Well, it's funny because basically what has been happening is people, people call us and say, can you tell us what the notes are? <laughs> like, can you just like, just share what you, what you know. And, and that's what we do. It's a word of mouth. One of the uh, things that I always thought was really special about volumes one and two specifically were the collaborators that came on board. I wonder if you could uh, speak to how, you know, musicians beyond Catalyst Quartet became a part of, of this project. Yeah. You know, um, we felt that it was important to highlight the the incredible works that were string quartet applicable. So that means piano quintets and clarinet quintets, specifically for Samuel Coleridge Taylor, those pieces are beyond incredible, like just stunning, incredible works. And it was like a no brainer that we wanted to have collaborators for that first volume. And it was a no brainer who we wanted. And luckily they said, yes. Um, and it was one of the most wonderful collaborations. And we continue to play concerts together, which is really great. Um, uh, yeah, really wonderful. Uh, yeah, I kind of want to loop back to one of the previous questions about musician rapport. It must be uh, an interesting or a specific type of dynamic to enter a space as an ensemble with you know, for lack of a better word, an outsider and to still, you know, have the goal of creating this experience that is representative of the synergy that Catalyst has, you know, created over over the years. Are there 
coffee dates before rehearsals or how, <laughs> but, but, but what, uh, I wonder about some of the non-musical aspects of creating a successful collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. So actually with Stuart and, and, um, and Anthony, we actually just dug right into work just because of like schedules and people living in different places. And we just got right into it. Um, and obviously for all of us, I think the, we all had the same feeling of like, this music is so incredibly beautiful and, and amazing. And we want to do it justice. We want to do like the best possible interpretation. And so there was a lot of love, like there's a lot of like positive, wonderful energy in that way, which made the recording process great with Michelle. It was actually really cool because I went to college with Michelle and, um, I actually started talking to her about this stuff like before we started recording because she's actually encountered the same issues we had with the price um, publishing wrong notes situation. And so we went into it in a, in kind of like a slightly different place of like, let's figure this out and make it right. And so there was that um, sort of aspect to it, but you know, just right away, get to work and, and rehearse and make it make it happen. Yeah, I have to say I wasn't expecting the conversation to uh, circle publishers so much, but I think it's a really important aspect that we often don't think about. I wonder if, you know, there are hope for goals or uh, results impact on the publishing front. Is there a way for what Catalyst records to become uh, a corrected score, corrected parts? Is there a pathway for that? I think there is. I'm not sure exactly how yet, but it's something that I've been working on a lot. And we've been thinking about and trying to figure out how, how to move forward with that. How, so, how does this how does this all align with, and, and I guess similarly, uh, how, how does this all align with Catalyst Quartet's focus on education? Do these pieces uh, uh, go into schools or, or, or other areas to expose the younger generation to? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most incredible things about all of this music is that there's a there's a language there that is so familiar mm. and that is so especially in terms of like um, the American sound and folk songs and spirituals and things that is that is so there. It's something that everybody knows that when you hear this music, it's almost like, wait a minute, this is what was missing. Mm. And I think for a lot of um, younger people, when they hear this, it's like a revelation. It's like, why, where, where was this, right? Um, the works also, if, when it comes to to working with much younger children, um, especially with uh, Lawrence Price's uh, folk songs, they are just so perfectly packaged for um, smaller presentations, and you can just pull out like little little bits here and there, which work, work really well. Um, and then, you know, obviously you go into conservatory and whatnot in terms of like, um, you know, string quartet repertoire and, and things that are going to help your whole education and learning. These are extremely difficult pieces mm. with very specific challenges, like similar to like, you know, learning, learning a Bartok quartet where you have to really think about the harmonic language and what that means in terms of balance for the ensemble and all colors and time establishing a tradition of of 
of the folk um, language and what that means in terms of time and interpretation. So there's a lot of layers there. There's a lot that you could do. What do you think would uh, be the generational impacts of these pieces playing a role in, you know, the way that string playing is foundationalized? You know, for, for many people our age, the journey began with, you know, Bach, with the Brandenburgs and, and those sorts of things. What if, you know, younger students begin to learn this music instead? Do you think that there will be, you know, any significant shift in the way the uh, the industry looks, the way that musicians are able to play and engage music? I wonder what your thoughts are there. Absolutely. I mean, I've always thought that and we have always thought that. <laughs> so um, I just think that uh, when you when you have diverse expression of all kinds of people, you learn so much about, about yourself, about how to express in general, about, you know, it's being able to understand the folk language of many different cultures Mm -hmm. is just so important. And I think it, it expands your horizons. It just makes everything better. So I wonder if you'll take us through volume three. You've already mentioned a couple of the composers who are featured there, but what's physically on this this newest uh, edition of Uncovered? So I think this this edition of Uncovered is really interesting. So we have three American composers and who all had pretty great success during their lifetime um, and lived through some really interesting political moments in um, history. As well as, you know, but for whatever reason, these pieces don't really live in the canon, you know? Mm. And um, I kind of like to, like, my nickname for this album is like the American Masters, (laughs) Mm. Uh, which I love. Um, I think that we were, we really wanted to have one, like, having one quartet by each of these composers was really nice thing to have side by side and to feel the also musical differences. Like, for example, Perkinson lived in the jazz world, worked so much with dance theater Harlem, you know, had that New York life, that very interesting, like so many different, wore so many different hats, right? Mm -hmm. And then this piece, which in a way lives very much in a classical structure, is so fun and 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 rhythmically challenging jazzy has like so much textural interest it's very beautiful um so i i just think that's awesome and one of my favorite pieces honestly and then you have william grant still who was probably the most successful in his time the dean of music right mm-hmm. and he uh wrote this incredibly intimate sweet um, sort of soft, beautiful string quartet that I think is a testament to his lyricism. I've always thought his music was just like his his manipulation of song of like long lines, really incredible, and that's so clear in this work. Um, throughout, they say that these three movements are portraits of his friends. Yeah. But then I also read that it might he might have had other um titles. Um so it's I'm, I'm a little bit like I wonder if that's really true. Um <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And then finally, The Walker, which is such an incredible piece. And over the last few years, we've been hearing the the middle movement, the slow movement everywhere. We, we've heard it. Everybody's been playing it. Nobody has played the whole quartet. Nobody realizes that it lives on inside of these two kind of intense, kind of crunchy, uh, dissonant at times music. Mm-hmm. And then there's this blossoming, perfect, beautiful, like lullaby, you know, thing in the middle, which is uh, incredible. And so I, that piece is so powerful. Um, uh, and if we're going back to like learning how to, uh, you know, benefits to people playing this piece, like learning how to balance that tension, that harmonic tension and the colors within that piece, it's really challenging. And I think, um, would be worthwhile for, for people to learn. Considering how unfamiliar, relatively speaking, that people are with this music and the responsibility that Catalyst has to really put out the best renditions, the best performances of this music, how do you begin to decide that the 180th take is okay? How do you <laughs> how do you say okay, we've 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 done it? How do you get to to that? Feeling because I'm I'm sure you can always go back and determine yeah. oh well that could be this that could be that you know that's what's so hard honestly that's the hardest thing you know what we what we have done throughout this entire product project from the first um, album until now is just try to to give it the time that it deserves so mm-hmm. that means time with it settled time interpretational. Um, time in terms of like research into what these composers lives were like, what they were listening to, what the folk songs are, where they're coming from, like researching vocal um, traditions of the, of these things and sort of like trying to find a different way of, of thinking about the music. Um, I always tell people, I say like, if you were to hear a, a Brahms quartet for the first time, you don't know Brahms, at all Mm -hmm. and four random people sit down and read let's say brahms a minor string quartet for the first time that would sound crazy (laughs) it would sound crazy and weird and the the reason for that is because we have an established tradition of a language that we know by these composers like brahms beethoven etc and how many recordings of the beethoven quartets exist right a million and so, and that means that so many people have gotten to do that, to dig, to to find these traditions and these the time, the time that it takes to to make it um, a part of you. And so, what I hope is that we are the first of many recordings that are given the time of this music. You know. Yeah. Are there? Um, I did read on your website there are maybe hints of uh, a volume four. Is there anything that you could share about that? Maybe oh, some yeah, of the composers of you're thinking about, or yeah, yeah, no, Chevalier de Saint Georges, all of the string quartets. That'll be a that'll be some good exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a lot. There's a lot, and um, one of the reasons that one won't come out within a year, which is a little bit sad for me, um, is because we still have to find six of the quartets. Oh Here wow! We are again. <laughs> as far as physically finding parts and scores, oh wow! So, 
so far we have two of the three sets. So, um, are there are there partners there like musicologist friends? Yeah, we've friends? been we've been emailing people. There's some some uh, we, we know that some of it is in Europe, so we're going to be contacting some of the libraries there and whatnot. I mean, there's also the the side of fundraising this project, which is like another conversation. So there's that too, but um, but that's that's a hurdle. Um, so so yeah, I mean that is technically the last volume of the uncovered project as it as it was originally conceived you know historic historically important black composers um so, so speaking now, of the, the fundraising how can people contribute or, or help make this possible even quicker <laughs> if you go to our website and you go to our projects page and you click on uncovered there is a place where you can donate to the project and it's tax deductible oh excellent so. excellent <laughs> so I, I wonder what, you know, some of Catalyst's broader ultimate goals are, you know, when when Uncovered is completed and you, you know, continue to explore new music. What's the impact that you're hoping to to really have on the field at large? Um, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, on, honestly, I think that ultimately we want to make the string quartet experience accessible to everyone, to everyone. And something that when you come to one of our concerts that you might be coming for Beethoven, but you leave loving Jesse Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just that, that there is also, I think I have a lot of thoughts and we do about concert traditions and, and um, you know, that people aren't afraid I had this conversation recently with somebody that people aren't afraid to clap in between movements. Not in people are, you know <laughs> what I mean? That like, that it's something that, that is a normal thing to go to a concert and enjoy that everybody can access, access. called Calvary. It's a movement uh, from the first string quartet of Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, not to be confused with Samuel Coleridge Taylor, but uh, a very important uh, Black composer from the 20th century from here in the United States. Always great to uh, get a reminder of his really incredible music. And of course, beautiful work by the Catalyst Quartet in that recording. An honor uh, to chat with Carla about the work of the ensemble and appreciate everyone uh, who made this week's chat possible. Be sure to go uh, support Catalyst Quartet uh, on their website. That address is Catalyst quartet.com. Wanted to make sure I got that one right there. Okay. So uh, before the interview, I spoke a little bit about affirmative action. And for this week's Triloquy, I wanted to be transparent about my take 
uh, and experiences with student loans and the Supreme Court's refusal to help us with them. Uh, so if I go all the way back to my high school days, I have to admit that college was something that I was aware of, but not quite sure how I could make happen. Uh, so when I started playing the bassoon in seventh grade, I remember my dad always talked about how this was my ticket to college, which was fine, but I didn't know what that meant or, or what it required of me. So uh, my senior year, I auditioned for the music program at the University of Memphis, where I got a full ride. Very, I'm, I'm proud to be a tiger. Uh, and <laughs> But what I didn't have, uh, despite that full ride, uh, was a way to take care of myself financially other than my student tuition. So I had a job. I, I've been I had been working since I was 17 years old all the way in high school. So I had a job waiting tables, but um, I had to start taking out loans to, you know, help with rent and to eat, to have a car, to, you know, get from point A to point B and to do what I needed uh, to do to make my way through my undergraduate degree. Uh, by the time I made it to graduate school, I was playing the bassoon at a high enough level to get a, a full ride to USC, which I was very grateful for. But again, this was Los Angeles. I had to take out loans to to live, to get to and fro. I ended up taking out a student loan to uh, buy my bassoon, and it's and it's just you know what what I had to do. So here we are. I am uh, newly graduated uh, with a master's degree, and I'm one of the few lucky people uh, to uh, have a job lined up, a bassoon job lined up. I had a contract with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, uh, but I also had something like uh, eighty thousand dollars in student loan debt. So. So, you know, I paid what I could month by month, month by month until, you know, uh, things got, <clears throat> excuse me, a little uh, challenging <laughs> financially. You know, musicians out here aren't rich and, you know, had to do income based repayment. And then uh, eventually, you know, the, the COVID uh, uh, pause hit. Um, so that was some relief. But over the course, even of paying month to month to month, paying all this money, I racked in uh, another something like $20,000 worth of interest. So right now, my student loan debt uh, uh, balance is about $102,000, which I guess... I can pay off one day, but you know I'm out here working hard, work working multiple jobs. You know I'm with ACO. I'm here on Triloquy. I do radio work. I am busy, and the thought of paying off $102,000 in student loan debt, you know, is it, it just seems kind of out of reach. So for the Supreme Court to just strike this down, it's it feels like a direct attack. I know that there are so many other people in positions like mine, people with even more student loan debt than than I have. Um, and I just need to know what our next move is. Uh, it's not like we vote for members of the Supreme Court. Sure, we can vote for people who appoint other people. But even so, we remember what happened toward the end of uh, Barack Obama's presidency when there were rules set up to block him from uh, placing uh, people on the Supreme Court. So it, it just all seems fixed. And it's hard to know which way to turn, who to talk to, who to vote for. If we should vote, you know, that's the that's the prickly conversation that a lot of people uh, don't want to have. So, you know, all, all of that to say, this is something that is directly impacting me. Uh, if you don't have student 
loan debt out there, shout out to you. I'm happy for you. I wish I was you in that case, but uh, but that that's not the case for me, and that's not the case for so many other people. So let's band together. Let's in the same way that we can react to uh, the uh, the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action and figuring out how we can connect that to the arts. We need to be having this conversation about student loans as well. There are so many of us uh, whose careers were built on the places we were able to go to school, the teachers uh, who we were able to study with, and those things just wouldn't have been possible without student loans for many of us, certainly not for me. Does that mean I deserve to be in debt for the rest of my life? Does that mean I should have just gone down a different path, been a car mechanic or something? Shout out to the car mechanics. We need y'all. But, you know, what? what is what, what is what is all of this supposed to boil down to at the end of the day when we have a government that just refuses to hold out their hand for us, that just wants to continue to stamp us down and, and stamp us down? Just something for you to... Uh, think about as you uh, go on with your day-to-day. Sorry that this is a uh, day late. Uh, I've, the air quality has really been uh, taking a toll on me. I've uh, been fighting a, a terrible cough, but uh, glad to finally get with y'all this week. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in. Uh, chant for me, pray for me, whatever you do with this move to New York and these student loans. And I will talk to y'all again next week. See you then. Mm-hmm.